Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as always, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. If you really want to hear about it, the first thing you'll probably want to know is where I was born and what my lousy childhood was like and how my parents were occupied and all before they had me and all that David Copperfield kind of crap. But I don't feel like going into it if you want to know the truth. Good, because we didn't want – oh, that was a quote. Yes. No, okay. that, that does not – that was not mine. That was a quote. Um yeah, it's a quote of – and here's the hard thing to believe. It's a quote from a book I have never read. Really? And it is a classic, but I was never – it was never part of my curriculum growing up. And so uh, one of these days I'm going to have to fix that. Anyway, so today we're going to talk about an interesting piece of technology that was very influential early on in the era of personal computers. That's the truth. And, um, of course, we've, we've talked on um, its sibling uh, later or earlier, earlier, earlier in our podcast history. Yeah. Um, and uh, Jonathan really wanted to get into a bit of the history of the company today. So uh, we'll, we'll talk about the history of this particular machine, but uh, sort of in a, a the greater context of the company itself. And it starts with a guy who was born in Europe. Yeah, a, a Polish immigrant named mm-hmm. Jack Tramiel. Uh, he actually had a very uh, very traumatic early experience because he was, he was one of the uh, – uh, Jews who were rounded up by Germany and put into a concentration camp. Um, now, fortunately, he survived that ordeal, eventually moved to North America, originally New York City, uh, became part of the U.S. Army, and actually began to learn how to repair typewriters. What? Typewriters? Yes, he was learning. What's that? <laughs> okay, kids, back in the day, <laughs> typewriters were these devices that would print directly to paper. Um, so yeah, it was a, he, he was a typewriter repairman and, uh, he started to, he found, uh, an opportunity to create a company, uh, in Toronto, Ontario. Canada. And so he moved to Toronto and in 1954 he he founded a company called the Commodore Portable Typewriter Company. And uh just so you know, I I've got some uh, other interesting things that happened in 1954 just to give context mm-hmm. to what else is going on in the world. I just thought this would be kind of cool. I I I kind of want to do this from here on out um, to kind of give context to sure. when historical events happen. So in 1954, that was also the year the first nuclear-powered submarine was unveiled. That was mm-hmm. the USS Nautilus. Uh, the, the hydrogen bomb was tested at Bikini Atoll, which just makes me think of Beanie and Cecil because they had the island no Bikini Atoll. Mm-hmm. And then uh, 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 there's a – according to True Knowledge, which is an artificial intelligence program created by William Tunstall Pido. Uh, April 11th, 1954 was officially the most boring day in the 20th century because nothing of any real consequence happened that day. Uh, Brown versus Board of Education happened in 1954 that mm-hmm. ended segregation in public schools in the United States. The first issue ever of Sports Illustrated magazine published that year. Uh, Lord of the Flies published that year. 
Actually, now that I think about it, I should have used that as the quote for the beginning of this podcast. Uh, Texas Instruments announced the development of the first transistor radio in 1954, and Texas Instruments is going to play a part in this discussion as well. Oh, yes. And one of the most pivotal events in 1954, the very first Godzilla movie premieres. (laughs) So... Uh, in 1955, the company officially incorporates and becomes Commodore Business Machines Incorporated. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, you were going to say? No, I, I was going to add that the uh, the Commodore history that I've pulled up uh, suggests that uh, part of the reason that uh, that Jack Tremiel decided to get into uh, business manufacturing his own equipment was because um, the the machines, the typewriters that were coming in from overseas were much more inexpensive. Yeah. And, uh, you know, his, his repair business was sort of, uh, he realized that he wasn't going to have much of a future in that. So he decided to get in on, uh, on his own thing. Yeah. Uh, which, which was a smart deal for him. Really. It worked out. Yeah. It worked out. In 1962, the company was listed in the New York Stock Exchange as Commodore International Limited. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in the 1970s, Commodore began the transition to get into the business of, of manufacturing calculators, including scientific calculators. And hmm. they were. They, I feel like we've talked about some people who've manufactured calculators. Yeah, things. yeah. Well, they met with early success, but then Texas Instruments got into the game, and of course, their thing was creating affordable uh, calculators for but, for consumers. Sorry. Plus, they had to uh, compete with uh, Hewlett Packard. Uh, yes. Of course, they were they were looking more at uh, high end business machines. Yeah. So Texas Instruments starts to hone in on this calculator business, and that's when. Uh, the by the mid 70s mid to late 70s that's when the the concept of the personal computer as we consider them today that's when it's really started to take hold and so tramiel thought this is really where it's at we should get into this because the calculator business is starting to get a little too crowded and uh they hired an engineer by the name of chuck pedal mm-hmm. uh who actually joined a a division of commodore called MOS Technology Incorporated. Ah, uh, yes. So this is a subsidiary, essentially, of Commodore. Mm-hmm. And MOS Technology is the company that created, uh, well, they, they manufactured semiconductors. Yes. And he, uh, Pedal created a processor chip, which was sort of similar to a chip that Motorola had made mm-hmm. previously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was called the 650X series. So you 6502 being one of the most famous, and 6510 being another. And we'll talk about those in a little bit. As famous as, you know, chips get. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least got in those days. Right. So these are processors that were very, very influential early on. So Mm -hmm. 1976, Commodore International Limited relocates to Westchester, Pennsylvania, uh, a place I'm actually really familiar with. Mm-hmm. I've been to Westchester many, many times. In 1977, uh, Commodore then unveiled the Personal Electronic Transactor, or PET. Ah, uh, the Commodore PET. Yeah, the Commodore PET was one of the uh, – that, well, that was the first computer that Commodore created. Mm-hmm. And they unveiled it at, uh, in 1977 at CES in Chicago. No. Yeah, if you listen to our CES podcast, you remember we talked about how – you know, they, they experimented with different uh, cities, including Chicago, for a while. Well, the pet was really popular in education, in schools, but it wasn't a it wasn't a success in the home market at all. It had a very industrial look. It was made out of metal. 
and it was pretty expensive. Uh, but it did feature the MOS 6502 processor. Mm-hmm. Now, in 1980, Commodore announced the VIC-20. And I remember the VIC-20 very well. Yeah. It actually went on sale in 1981. And originally, the sales price was $299, which was incredible. I mean, it was, it was undercutting all the other personal computers that were on the market at the time. Uh, by the way, in today's dollars, that's about 708 bucks. So this was the first PC to sell over a million units. It was the first really popular home PC. Yeah. Now, the the VIC-20 was sort of unusual in another way, too, um, because, you know, by today's standards, it wouldn't be as unusual. um, But uh, at at this point, it's a machine that uh, didn't have its own monitor. Um, and, And it really didn't have a monitor that you got with it. You were really – most people I knew that had VIC-20s just hooked them up to a TV. Yeah. Um, but that was part of its appeal was it was for people who wanted to mess around with computers. And at that point, if you had a home computer, you were somebody who wanted to mess around with computers. Um, this wasn't something that uh, you, you did because you wanted to log into bulletin boards or because you you know uh, needed the internet for school or something like that. You didn't – be, why would you want a computer in your house? You know, right. well, because I like computers. I want to learn more about computers. So, uh, you know, this is this is an affordable way for people to get on in on the ground floor and fool around with computers. Yep. Um, now, it wasn't exactly a uh, powerful machine. No, five kilobytes of RAM. Yeah. And only three and a half kilobytes were available once you booted it up. The other one and a half that that was dedicated to the startup process and running the the uh, the back end of the machine. So mm-hmm. you only had three and a half kilobytes of, of RAM to work with. Um, and it was cartridge based. Yes. But it also, you could also get a cassette tape drive that oh, yes. could connect to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the advantages of hooking it up to your television was that if you have a color TV, you have a mm-hmm. color monitor. Yes. Whereas if you look at the other computers on the market at that time, they were monochromatic monitors. Yep. So that was a big advantage. Now, these, these advantages Still, if you look at the the power of the VIC twenty, that was that was, the biggest criticism that was directed at the VIC twenty was that it was underpowered. Mm-hmm. So uh, Commodore had a response to that, mm-hmm. which brings us to the real subject of this podcast. In nineteen eighty two, Commodore introduced the Commodore sixty four, and they introduced it at CES. Yep. Now this uh, both of these machines have uh, essentially the same form factor. Um, and if you look at it now, uh, go back and if you've never seen one and you go back and look at photos of this, uh, it looks sort of like it's just the keyboard. Um, it was sort of an all in one, but it wasn't like we think of it today in, in terms of, you know, some of the machines that, uh, uh, that come out that are all in one where they have the monitor with the computer in it. This was the keyboard with the computer in it. Um, and, uh, yeah, those keys were, uh, um, very clicky. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, absolutely solid machines. Yes, um, solid to the point of if you if you were to drop one on your foot, you might need medical attention. Well, Commodore believed in making these machines tough. Yes, so, um, but yeah, I mean it's it's uh, not exactly a glamour queen of a machine, but uh, you know, but boy, how did it work? And it, very versatile. Uh, it originally cost five hundred ninety five dollars, which in today's dollars one thousand three hundred twenty six bucks. And still at five ninety five, that's still very affordable yes. compared to the other personal computers, especially the Apple II. Uh, the two main competitors against Commodore at this time 
were really Atari and Apple. Mm-hmm. Uh, Texas Instruments to a slightly lesser degree. And Tandy. To a much lesser degree. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, the 595 price point was very attractive. And the reason why it's called the 64 is that it had 64 kilobytes of RAM. Yeah, Commodore was always looking for those fancy names. Yeah. Uh, the the design team included Robert Russell, uh, Bob Yanis, and David Zimbecki. Um, they were the ones who kind of were the brains behind the original development, although there were other people who were also very heavily involved in creating this, this computer. And I have the first paragraph of the user manual if you would like to hear it. Absolutely. Let's go okay. with that. Your new Commodore 64 is the best home computer available today. You can use your Commodore 64 for everything from business applications to household paperwork to exciting games. The 64 offers you lots of memory, 64 kilobytes, lots of color, 16 different colors, lots of sound, music and sound effects, and lots of fun and practical uses. You can use prepackaged software or you can write your own programs in easy-to-learn basic. Well, their version of easy-to-learn basic apparently wasn't easy-to-learn for everyone because I've seen some criticism leveled at it. However, um, it, what, what's funny is that this machine – well, it's not funny that this machine took off. Yeah. Um, people had – many, many people owned a VIC-20, a Commodore 64, or both. Um, and the power of this machine was not in its processing power or its speed. But it was in its ability to reach people with the idea of having a computer at home. Yeah, and it, it did have some other features that made it very attractive. Um, it had 8-bit graphics, which put it on par with the the home video game systems that were coming out. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there was a an appeal to video game enthusiasts. And there were a lot of games that came out for the Commodore 64 uh, that, were, that ended up being incredibly popular. Uh, and then there was the fact that it also allowed you to program in languages like Pascal, Logo, Forth, and Fortran. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the big things about the Commodore 64, one of the things that was most attractive to a lot of users was the fact that it had a sound interface device sound chip, or SID chip. Yes. Now, the SID chip was developed by Bob Yanis, Mm -hmm. uh, who we mentioned earlier. And he actually would later on go on to found a synthesizer company, uh, so he he knew a thing or two. He actually knew a lot about about sound design, music, and he wanted to be able to create a, a, a device that could represent some a pretty broad array of sounds. And the Commodore 64 had a much more sophisticated sound system than almost any other device on the market at that time. Mm-hmm. So uh, you still have people who are very much fans of the old Commodore 64 when it comes to creating uh, music today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you can still find uh, lots of 64s out there. Yep. Um, there's a, a site that, that's dedicated to the C64, uh, c64.com, uh, which is pretty interesting if you like to play around with that. But um, one of the – I remember back when I was uh, a kid and people had the VIC-20s and 64s, a lot of the magazines out there um, – you know, the computing magazines liked to offer a program mm-hmm. um, in the back of the magazine. So you'd read about, you know, it, it was sort of like the PC worlds uh, of the day, but it was, um, you know, magazines like Compute um, mm-hmm. had mm-hmm. 
uh, you, you read about uh, you know, peripherals and, and cool things you could do with your computer. And then the back of the, the uh, thing, it would tell you about how to program. And it would have a, a program in there that you could enter in yourself. Um, and I think that was that was sort of a beautiful thing. A friend of mine and I uh, sort of dabbled in that, uh, you know, working on trying to, to come up with uh, uh, or try to play some of the games that they had written in there. And it was really kind of cool because it gave you this perception that programming something yourself wasn't really all that hard. Right. Um, you know, it's it's sort of daunting in a way to to pop in um, a DVD now or, you know, download something from the Internet and you play these games with these amazing graphics today and, and sound, you know, uh, surround sound and, and uh, you know, millions of colors. But, um, it, you know... You have to get under the hood you, to actually look at the code. That that seems kind of, and, and you know, for some people it can be really daunting. I um, think for most people, because well, sure, you but know, I didn't want to make it sound like you know everyone sure, but thinks of it that way. But back in back when the Commodore sixty four launched, it was completely feasible for a single person to create a game mm-hmm. from start to finish. Everything from the graphics to the sound to the gameplay itself, the story, whatever you want to call it. Uh, all of that was completely feasible for one or maybe maybe a small team of people, like two or three, oh, to sure. put it all together. And of course, today, uh, to create games that compete at at the standard level, it's entire divisions of companies that that build games. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't still people out there who take it upon themselves to create a game all by themselves. And there's some sure. really popular and compelling games out there. They're made by a single person, but that's the exception, not the rule, as opposed to the other way around back when the Commodore 64 premiered. And it was sort of a, a basic platform. That's kind of a pun, but unintended. But it was a, it was a platform for people to learn the, the foundations for computer programming. Mm-hmm. And so it was a very popular device, especially, I mean, if you talk to people who are, are well-established computer scientists today, a lot of them have fond memories of the Commodore 64 because that was the machine that got them into computer science. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I'd read, too, that one of the uh, benefits, of, one of the, the detriments of the 64 led to one of the uh, real strengths of the 64, which uh-huh. was um, it, it really didn't have a lot of uh, – it didn't have a lot of memory. You didn't have a lot of room to play with code. So the people who learned to program learned to do that very efficiently yeah. because they didn't have a, a lot of room for error right? Um, and, and a lot of room for extraneous stuff in their code. Now, um, I, I don't know if you knew this or not, but uh, they they may – for a while, Commodore actually considered the possibility of doing something else uh, before they, they released the 64. In fact, they, they heard an overture from some people at a, a budding brand-new computer company. Um, but they turned them down. There were a couple guys named Steve, who had approached uh, who had approached Commodore with the idea of, "Hey, wouldn't you like to buy this computer design we have in mind?" Um, and as it turns out, uh, Commodore passed on the idea for the Apple II. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, what what is now Apple could have been Commodore in yeah. a way, but. Uh, in, in doing so, we actually ended up with two great machines because right. we ended up with the 64 and the Apple II, which ended up being competitors. Um, but uh, it's kind of funny. I had, I had no idea. Now, I, I knew about the ties with um, with Atari, of course, um, right? since they were Atari engineers. But uh, Yeah, and that's going to get even more complicated in a minute, too. Uh, yeah, the, the 
And the 64 um, used cartridges just like the, the VIC-20 did. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. also could use cassettes, but it also had uh, an optional floppy drive. The 1541? Yeah, five and a quarter inch floppy drive. Five oh, and a quarter yes. inch discs. I still uh, have some. And, yeah, I think I do too, but they're all for the Apple IIe. Yeah, mine are too. Uh, the, but the, no, no. But the floppy disk, <laughs> I think the drive cost $1,000. So it was actually more expensive than the computer itself. Uh, and it was an add-on that you could get and, and plug into your Commodore 64 to give it additional functionality. Noisy um, too. Yeah. And the cartridges could allow you to get... Uh, better performance out of your Commodore 64. It wasn't just like a video game console where a cartridge a game is on the cartridge itself. In mm-hmm. fact, the the addition of the floppy drive was kind of interesting because that introduced a new concept in computers, which was piracy. Oh yeah, because you know with cartridges you had them hard coded on. You know, the programs were hard-coded on the cartridge itself. Yeah, those are ROMs. Yeah, you had a ROM on this chip. There's just no way that you could really manufacture one of your own. Well, you you could, but you'd have to know how to burn the chips, and it's it's yeah, not it, something that people had the hardware for. Yeah, you couldn't really do it at home. <clears throat> uh, whereas, not easily. Whereas with disks, it, would, it suddenly became feasible to be able to copy programs from one disk to another. And that's when you started seeing things like copy protection being added on into disks. And then you started seeing things like people figuring out how to get around copy protection. Well, that all kind of started with the Commodore 64. Uh, Also, in 1986, so a few years after it had debuted, you started to see a new operating system appear on Commodore 64 called GEOS, Mm -hmm. which is Graphic Environment Operating System. So it was a, a graphic user interface. Now, Keep in mind that the the Mac OS, which was the first uh, operating system to popular, popularize the GUI in 1984, it had been out for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. So uh, it wasn't like Commodore 64 was breaking new ground. They were kind of going the same direction that, that Apple was going in at that time. And, of course, before anyone writes in, yes, we're aware Xerox PARC had cr- developed the, the GUI years before. That's why he said popularize. And home computers. Those are two important parts of that discussion. Yeah, when you were using an Apple II or a Commodore 64, VIC-20, um, the Atari 400 and 800, mm-hmm. um, the early IBM PCs, you know, we're, we're talking uh, a text-based operating system primarily um, to get started with. And then, you know, things, things changed in the mid-'80s, but... Uh, yeah. So we're not talking keyboard and mouse. We're talking keyboard and keyboard. Keyboard. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, and and Commodore chose a pretty interesting way to market the 64. Not only was it a cheaper computer than a lot of its competitors, they decided to try and get the 64 into retail stores, not just electronic stores. Yes. So you could actually find a Commodore 64 at like a toy store. Yeah. Or uh, a major retailer, mm-hmm. and so it, they were. You know, the idea was to try and get this device in front of as many average consumers as possible, uh, as opposed to throwing them in an electronic store where you really had more of a hobbyist kind of mentality, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't. The average consumer just wasn't necessarily walking into an electronic store on a fairly regular basis. Mm-hmm. So that helped really push the popularity of the Commodore sixty four, and in fact. According to almost every source I could find, uh, there was a point in some part of the discussion of the Commodore 64 about it being the the most popular personal computer model ever. Yeah, that's 
kind of hard to quantify realistically. Right. But but when you but if you do limit it to saying one computer model, then it makes it a little easier because then you're like, oh, all right. So you know, even yeah. though even though Macs might be or or Windows based PCs are really incredibly popular. If you narrow it down to a single model, then then the game changes because there's so many different models out there. But according to the Center for Computing History, between 1982 and 1993, Commodore sold around 17 million units. That's quite a few. That's a lot of a lot of computers, especially in an age when computers weren't on everybody's list of things to buy. Right. And Commodore also took the approach of developing the components for its computers itself, mm-hmm. which helped keep the price down. In mm-hmm. fact, that's one of the reasons why the the devices were priced where they were because they had this we call it vertical integration. Mm-hmm. They they had their own we'd mentioned the semiconductor manufacturing plant. Well, that was the thing about Commodore was that it was developing these pieces itself so it could keep the cost of manufacturing down as opposed to purchasing chipsets from other companies, uh, which would end up increasing the price of the units. Yeah. For example, um, you talk about today's computers, somebody like uh, Acer or uh, HP or Apple, they buy processors from Intel or maybe AMD in yeah. some cases, but uh, Commodore was building theirs themselves. Right. So I think I think the price for Producing a Commodore 64 was around $135, mm-hmm. and then they were selling them for $595. Yeah. So uh, it was a good profit margin for Commodore 64 once they once they started to really uh, get popular in the market. And um, the uh, it's interesting what happened shortly after the premiere of the Commodore 64, mm-hmm. uh, because there was a lot of upheaval in the Commodore company itself. Oh yes, uh, in 1983. Practically the entire team that developed the Commodore 64 left Commodore. Mm-hmm. And they started a new company called Peripheral Visions, and then that was renamed into Insonic, mm-hmm. which later on in the 90s was purchased by Creative Labs. Yeah. Which uh, makes sound cards. Oh, yeah. And, they're they're uh, very popular sound card manufacturers. Yes. And so. So they're still around, sort yes, of. Yes. And, uh, uh, you know, Bob Yanis was one of those people. Um, uh, David Z- uh, Zimbecki was one of them. And so, yeah, there was a whole bunch of people who were instrumental in the development of the Commodore 64 who, by 1983, had decided they wanted to try and do their own thing. And in 1984, the founder of the company, Tramiel, he he quits Commodore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so this is 30 years after he's founded this company originally. He quits and he, he founds a company called Trammel Technology. Um that same year, the Commodore company purchases another uh, company. Don't make me cry. Called the Amiga Corporation. He's going to do it. So uh, the uh, Amiga Corporation was a startup company that was existing primarily on venture capital and was running out of cash. Mm-hmm. So Amiga Corporation was in some serious trouble. And Commodore comes around and says, all right, we're going to purchase this company and incorporate their technology into our business. Uh, meanwhile... Trammel Technology purchases another company mm-hmm. called Atari. Yep. Now, technically, they only purchased one part of Atari because at this point, Atari was in serious trouble. Keep in mind, this is 1984, so this is after the video game crash, mm-hmm. which which decimated Atari. Actually, I shouldn't use the word decimated. That has the whole one-tenth thing. It really <laughs> undermined Atari. Yes. And so... Uh, Trammel Technology purchased Atari's consumer division. Right. So now you've got Trammel, 
uh, technology headed by Jack Tremiel, who is the founder of Commodore, mm-hmm. competing directly against Commodore. <laughs> Yeah. Which has now purchased Amiga. Uh, by the way, the whole Amiga and Atari stories do not have happy endings. Um, we've talked about it, the fact that Atari's story in particular did not have a happy ending because that company was broken up into so many different pieces, all of which kind of met with – if they met with success, it was very limited success. Yeah. Now, they uh, they both were sort of in a position to do some – uh, pretty good things. I mean, the the sixty four left uh, Commodore with in a pretty good spot in the marketplace. Yeah, um, yeah. They they even talked to this this guy named Bill about uh, incorporating his version of BASIC on their machines. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Bill, Gates. Bill, I feel like whatever happened to that guy? Uh, well, he started marketing a a kind of shoe called the Conquistador, <laughs> but they run pretty tight. <laughs> right. So, um, how many people out there remember those ads? The Bill Gates, I'm Jerry Seinfeld ads. Raising my hand. Yeah, yeah. Can't see um, it. Listeners, if you are not familiar with them, you should go check them out. They were only on television for like a month and a half. Weird. Ads. And they were the strangest ads. Yeah. And they weren't really advertising anything in particular. It was it was very Seinfeld esque. It was the advertisement about nothing mm-hmm. other than conquistadors, and they run pretty tight. Yep. But um, but yeah, Com- Commodore was in a, in a good spot. And yeah. uh, this the the purchase of Amiga looked like it was going to be a good deal because um, Amiga was next generation technology. I yes, four thousand ninety six colors. Um, you know, a, a, a processor that could run at you know like twenty five hertz or yeah. megahertz. Yeah. I mean, and they introduced and they introduced the, the Amiga computer in nineteen eighty five. So just yeah. the year after they had purchased the company, the first Amiga computer hit store shelves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, the Mac. What is now the Mac Classic, the original Macintosh, hit hit store shelves in 1985, 1984, actually. Yeah. Um, and uh, Atari and Commodore were right on their heels. Yep. Commodore with the uh, the Amiga and the Atari ST series, which was also running those Motorola processors. Now, again, this is a departure because the the Amiga used a Motorola processor as its uh, main processor. So this is not an MOS chip. Yeah. And um, – you know, this is this is where people who are uh, still Amiga fans these days, um, you know, go. How did Commodore manage to mess this up? Well, we've talked about that in a, a podcast from long ago too. But uh, this was sort of the beginning of the end for for Commodore because right off the success of the sixty four, um, they introduced the Amiga series and they they sort of went along for a while. But um, they yeah. also introduced the Commodore one twenty eight. Ah yes, the 128. Now the 128 was a little larger than the 64, mm-hmm. um, at least in, in and it was probably uh, I would guess probably a lot of people would consider it more attractive than the yeah. 64. Yeah, and had you know it had a slightly more streamlined design, um, and it used an MOS chip, uh, so it was it, that's going back to Commodore's own chip set. Uh, so, but the the 128 just didn't didn't really. It's moderately successful. It's moderately successful, yeah. I, it's, no one really remembers that compared to the 64. Like When you say Commodore, most people think, oh, Commodore 64. They don't think Commodore 128. Or the Amiga, frankly. Yeah. Well, yeah. Amiga fans love it. Sure. Like you. Um, but yeah, so the, the, at that point, they started meeting with more limited success, and they started running into other issues. And uh, over the course of the next few years, what really happened was IBM. Yeah, computers. IBM either IBM clones, 
eventually what we just called Windows-based PCs started to really take over and Commodore just could not compete. Because at this point, you had instead of instead of having a single company you're competing against or mm-hmm. like a major competitor so commodore and apple or even commodore apple and atari now you had dozens of competitors because the these the approach that everyone made with the IBM based PCs was that it could be any manufacturer using those processors mm-hmm. and so you had all these different companies spring up that were developing various kinds of computers many of which were at a similar price level to Commodore's, and some of them had richer feature sets. Mm-hmm. So now you had Commodore competing against, uh, uh, well, like I said, dozens of companies. Mm-hmm. And, and it ultimately just could not keep up. And in fact, in 1994, Commodore declared bankruptcy, went yep. to Chapter 11 and filed for bankruptcy protection. Uh, a company called ESCOM hmm. bought Commodore in 1995, but that did not go so well. No. Escom, a German company. Yeah. And ESCOM had to declare bankruptcy in 1996 and was actually liquidated. Mm-hmm. In 97, a Dutch company called Tulip Computers NV bought the Commodore brand name. And since then, the Commodore brand name has continued in limited use. Yeah. The, uh, the Amiga properties, intellectual properties also, they they got divested in the course of these dealings. And yeah. so um, Amiga became a separate brand. Um, actually, Gateway purchased Amiga. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it sort of bounced around. Um, both of them, the brand names bounced around. Um, the recent uh, uh, acquisition of uh, both has uh, reunited the Commodore and Amiga brand names. Mm-hmm. Uh, the machines they're making now are, are basically Windows machines. Yeah. Um, they kind of harken back to the old form factors. Yeah, they, they have one that, that actually looks very much like the 64. Yeah, it's, it's, got, a, yeah, it's got a chassis that looks like the 64, yeah. but the, when you get down into the guts of it, it's not a 64. No, no, not, not technically. But, not technically. Uh, um, but it's kind of funny to, to see it happen. Um, but it's, it's amazing, though, looking back at it. How many programmers can say they they got their start fiddling around with the sixty four that that their parents got them? Yep. Um, and some credit the success of the video game industry to the Commodore sixty four simply because so many programmers were born uh, from the sixty four's ease of use as a, as a programming machine and or or at least its availability at a reasonable price. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it really sort of spawned the the interest in programming and programming games specifically, um, you know, for so many people. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it's 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 an amazing success story and sort of a not really a one hit wonder, but kind of almost because it was such a, a, a star for Commodore mm-hmm. uh, amid a a very troubled future uh, at that point for the company. So, yeah, pretty yeah. amazing. Yeah, it was definitely an interesting story. Uh, and, and again, like, I think back when Commodore 64 was at the height of its popularity, it would have been really difficult to imagine Commodore ending up the way it did. Yeah. Right? Like, you just wouldn't imagine that company going away. But it's a good reminder to all of us that companies that seem to be really successful and unstoppable – that's not necessarily always going to be the case. No, that's true. So it's a. I think 
anyone getting into the computer industry or those who are already in it should keep these kind of stories in mind to try and avoid the pitfalls that other companies have stumbled into. So even companies like Apple, where you look at Apple and you think, wow, they've really got it together. They've got a great aesthetic. They've really identified their market. They dominate in the market that they've identified. Um, you got to keep in mind the stories from companies like Commodore to make sure that you know you don't just take that for granted. And then next thing you know, two or three years down the road, uh, things start looking pretty grim. Or um, or vice versa in Apple's case. Um, but uh, well, even IBM has gotten out of making personal computers. Right. Even though they, um, you know, Commodore 64 helped popularize the idea of home computing, but uh, IBM's decision to cl- allow clones. Um, basically forced it out of the uh, home computer business. They got rid of their their uh, uh, home computer line and let Lenovo take that. Um, and now they they focus on business computing. But it's it's amazing and, how these things change. And because you would the, never have thought that the controversy in 2011 when it looked like HP was going yep. to get out of personal computers, and then they reversed their decision, and then yeah, if it you can listen, be a cutthroat business. Yeah, if you listen to our our multi part episode about HP, you know all about that. But yeah, it's, that's one of those things. You just cannot take it for granted. But I think that's a good discussion about the Commodore 64, a beloved dinosaur in the personal computer um, history. And if you guys have never had a chance to, to play with one, um, I do recommend you you look it up. You know, Look at some photos of it and get an idea of what we used to think of as a really sophisticated machine back in the day. Because uh, folks like Chris and myself were... That's that's kind of what we we identified as a personal computer back when we were kids. Um, So take a look at that and uh, then just um, go and hug your computer. All right. Well, that wraps up this discussion. So if you guys want to get in touch with us, you can drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle there is TechStuffHSW. Or you can write us an email at our brand new email address, TechStuff at Discovery.com. And Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House Network staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House Network's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?